Well, good morning, folks. Today we come to a familiar passage, one that we customarily uh, encounter usually during the week of the Passion, usually on what we call, uh, and as Episcopalians, we call Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday, one long liturgy in which we recite uh, some of the, the last parts of what Mary Jo read to us so well. Um, today, I wanted to sort of celebrate where we have, have, have uh, come to uh, in our close reading of the Gospel of Mark. We began at the very beginning of the Gospel, and we've been working through it very carefully, doing a deep reading of Mark's Gospel, as I have said, literarily, seeking to understand it as a work of art by which Mark is uh, trying to convey the essence of who Jesus was and 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 is for us uh, was for Mark and, and and the disciples whom he knew and and who he might be for us. Um, now on, on Palm Sunday, we this last Palm Sunday, we actually jumped ahead uh, and considered the events that Mark uh, describes in chapter fifteen. We're now in chapter fourteen, but those events that Mark describes in chapter fifteen and sixteen, we considered during Palm Sunday and Easter week. So we're going to conclude our series on the Mark, on the Gospel of Mark here today, uh, at least put the pause button on it until we get back to Palm Sunday. And at that time, we're going to come back uh, at the end of Lent next year and pick up uh, in chapter 15 and 16. Um, wanted to ask you to consider um, what it's like when we see our rocks shaken. Um, those folks who, for us, have been the foundation, the ones that we could always count on, you know, they're unshakable and therefore we find strength in them. And, and, and what it's like when we see them being human. Um, you know, I recall what it was like for me to see my dad uh, in his 80s suddenly helpless. I will never forget him looking to me with just such confusion about what was happening in, in his brain and in his inability uh, to, to uh, speak uh, the thoughts that were going through his mind and, and even to sustain thoughts at all and to, and to make sense of his thoughts. And, and uh, uh, three or four days later, uh, he died. Uh, and I remember my mother and, and uh, what it was like to see her wrestling with her death, uh, her making a decision to go forward uh, and and to, to say, it's now time. I'm ready to go join my husband. I, I'm not going to fight this anymore and making the decision to move forward and to, and to remove many of the things by which uh, the physicians were supporting her life. Uh, and and I, what I remember is how, how shaken I was, how hard it was, how surprising it was for, for me uh, to watch the pathos as they went, underwent a struggle uh, that I could could not, um, I could not do for them. I could not uh, protect them from that struggle. Uh, they just had to go through it with the, uh, for themselves. But, but how it rent my own heart uh, to see that happening. And I, I wanted to just remind us of that as we remember this story that Mark has, has shared with us in this story of Jesus as he wrestled with the prospect of his own death, which he knew was imminent. Today, we see what I would characterize uh, at, at Gethsemane as, as something where we 
we see truly what it means when we say in the creeds that Jesus was fully human and fully God. We see, uh, I think, in its greatest form, the, the fullness, the depth of his humanity. And yet there is a rich theological depth here that that uh, I hope that we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see and, and wrestle with ourselves as we encounter our own Gethsemane moments in our lives. But to get at that, let's look at just a, sort of the framing that Mark has done, as we have been doing throughout our study, uh, looking at it uh, as a work of art and see how he has used a literary device I, that I've called a sandwich to draw our eyes to uh, to the most important thing. And as I've shared with you multiple times in this literary device, the outer layers uh, help us to interpret the inner layer and the inner layer helps us to, to, to understand the outer layer. And so what, what, we, what we see in chapter 14 um, Mark doing is, is he has, uh, you know, a set of predictions, three predictions uh, that lead up to the Gethsemane moment. The first thing is the prediction of betrayal. The second thing is a prediction of abandonment, desertion, uh, not just by by uh, Peter or Judas, uh, but by all of the disciples. And then we see a prediction of apostasy by Peter, a prediction of uh, of complete denial of relationship by Peter. Uh, and then we have the moment in Gethsemane. And then Mark gives us, you know, uh, the the fulfillment of each of those things. We see Judas's betrayal. We see uh, the the desertion by the twelve, and we see uh, Peter's denial. Now, we uh, his actual denial. We're, we'll come back to that, of course, next uh, Palm Sunday. Um, but, but I want to suggest to you, though, that throughout Mark's gospel, we have seen two themes uh, that Mark has emphasized. The first being the weakness and the failure of the disciples, uh, uh, particularly in the second half of his gospel. And we see it at its climax here in chapter 14. And that's that's one theme that Mark is, has, has carried forward. And I, I want to remind you in the context of his audience, of, of Mark's intended readers, he's talking to a bunch of people who are facing a, ma- a monstrous, you know, Gethsemane moment for themselves. You know, the, the Roman legions are d- about to descend on Palestine. He's reminding of the, them of that. And he's reminding them of the promises that were made by the disciples in their failure to maintain those promises. Um, but, the, but the overall thing, the, the larger thing that we have seen throughout Mark's gospel, and we particularly see here, is, is that these things don't mean what they seem. Their apparent meaning is not the real meaning. What we see is the overall control of events by Jesus, who is apparently the victim. But he's demonstrated by these repeated passion predictions what's going to happen, and that what is going to happen is neither accident nor defeat. In fact, it's victory. It's God's victory. And he's interpreting these events and helping us to understand that. As each stage of the tragedy unfolds, we see by his accurate predictions that he's not being taken by surprise, but to the contrary, uh, what appears to be victory for the demonic forces that he is, that, that, that have arrayed themselves against him is in fact all contained within 
his foreknowledge, all contained with his purpose, all contained with what is written about uh, will happen to the Messiah, whom he calls the human one. So that's the grander theme that we've seen. And I, I want to remind you that as we enter into that, because that's the very first thing we see when Jesus tells us really three things today. You know, we, we see uh, the, him saying that the sheep will scatter. We see him uh, praying in them having the opportunity to join him. And then we see the sheep being scattered. Uh, so, uh, as Jesus is, I mean, as Mark is writing to uh, to his audience, uh, you know, about, the, you know, where the context is, the horror about to be visited upon all of Palestine by the Roman legions and, and, and who are about to see the imminent destruction of the temple. Those who are facing this question, will they betray? Will they desert? Uh, will they fail in their test of loyalty to their Lord? Uh, Mark is telling this story. So last week we saw Jesus predict betrayal by some unnamed disciple. This week we see the rest of that conversation. Lest anyone rest in the knowledge that they won't betray Jesus, Jesus predicts that every disciple, all of us, will be tested, will stumble. And when tested, he says all of his disciples there will at some point fail the loyalty test. So Jesus said to them, you will all falter in your faithfulness to me. It's written, I will hit the shepherd and the ship, uh, the sheep will go off in all directions. Now, uh, as I said, the theme here is that this has been foretold by the prophets. And I want to remind us that Jesus has repeatedly turned to Zechariah. Zechariah seemed to be one of his primary patterns for his self-understanding of who the Messiah is and what will happen to the Messiah. Uh, we, we saw that uh, from Zechariah, Jesus uh, had found his understanding of, of how he would enter Jerusalem. And so we, we saw him fulfilling uh, the prophecy of Zechariah by, by entering Jerusalem, not by the characteristic way through the grand gates in militant form, but rather de descending or rather ascending on a donkey through the Mount of Olives. Uh, and, and then we saw last week in him talking about the cup when he, when he, when he, when he talked about, uh, you know, at the Lord's Supper, uh, this is my cup. He again echoed Zechariah in, in the understanding that that uh, that the the remnant will participate in the Messiah's blood, and then so today we see that same thing when in his prediction that they will scatter, and as you'll see at the end of our story, his prediction of what will happen next. And so what we see is Jesus saying, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate, says the Lord of hosts. The, uh, the, the prophecy, the oracle that, uh, that Tom read us so well. And it continues, uh, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Uh, I will turn my head against the little ones. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we see Jesus echoing this, that this is what is about to happen. Um, so Jesus is saying, hey, uh, you know, you're going to abandon me. All will abandon me. Again, he's conscious of all these scriptural warnings 
uh, uh, which he senses are all culminating in this in this grand fulfillment there on the Mount of Olives. He has now shepherded his little flock. He's he's lived with them as refugees throughout Galilee, and then now in and you know in Bethany, and then going in and out of Jerusalem, and and so he's taking care of them from the time he gathered them in Galilee until now, and now the time has come when he the shepherd will be struck down. And he's saying for a time, the flock will run away to wherever they can hide. And he says that even this, though it will reflect their cowardice, even though it will reflect their confusion, is actually a part of God's plan. Jesus, in other words, is fulfilling the role that only he can play. He must go alone into the time of trouble, the great dark moment that he's about to go into in terms of his execution uh, is a place where the disciples have no place. And so they are called to pray. They must pray to be spared that dark moment. And that's what he says to them. But Peter responds, and perhaps some of us might respond, uh, yeah, uh, but that's other people. That's not me. Uh, uh, Peter says, even if anyone else stumbles, I won't. I won't. But Jesus said to him, I assure you, Peter, that on this very night before the crow, the the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Of course, Peter responded, as you know, uh, recognizing that Jesus is finally, you know, not finally, but Peter finally recognizing that Jesus is seriously going to go to the cross. He's accepting this destiny. Uh, He says, if I must die alongside you, I won't deny you. And not just Peter, we, we remember Peter in his denial, but, but Mark reports that all of them said the same thing, that none of them would deny Jesus, the, perhaps like all of us you know, who say we won't deny our Lord. And so what we see is this triple prayer of Jesus uh, that is, is going to find its parody in a, in, in a triple renunciation by Peter. So we're going to see in Gethsemane, you're so familiar with it already. Jesus is going to pray three times. He's going to place himself in the hands of of the one he knows as Abba, Father, and and, and, and seek to do his will, to understand his will. Um, And three times, Peter, the one whom Jesus chose to be the rock, the rock upon which he would rebuild our fellowship with God, three times that rock will deny that he even knows him. So that leads us to Gethsemane. Now, uh, in Gethsemane, I want to mention or just point out there are really two subplots happening. One is that Jesus prays. And the second is that the three slept. And when I talk about the, the three, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, Peter, James, and John. Remember, these are the same three who were on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9 with Jesus, who saw the revelation of Jesus and, the, and Moses and Elijah and slept through it. <laughs> uh, he's saying that this time be awake. Uh, so this time, so Mark tells us though that Jesus and his disciples once again uh, uh, went away, and and he invited. Uh, 
Peter, James, and John to go further on, uh, further on the Mount of Olives with him. Jesus says, "Sit here while I pray." And then he took Peter, James, and John, and uh, and and they went into an area uh, that. Uh, uh, that was an abandoned space, if you will, a, a, a space known for uh, having an oil press here. That's what the word Gethsemane means. So it's likely an olive orchard uh, because it, there would have been oil press in an olive orchard. So he took Peter, James and John there. The rest of the disciples, we assume, have have not gone so far, just as we saw at the Mount of Transfiguration. That was Jesus's habit, evidently. And Jesus, it's it, Mark tells us, began to feel despair. Despair, the, the the absence of hope, the loss of hope. Our Jesus began to feel what we so often feel, what you may be feeling right now, the loss of hope, a sense of forsakenness, a, a worry about being forsaken uh, that ultimately in Jesus's case will be fulfilled. Jesus began to feel anxious, just as so many of us feel anxious. We were talking, uh, Sajina and I were talking to our daughter uh, about anxiety and what that means. You know, it's and it's this this, uh, this this sense that overwhelms us, that causes us to be completely unsettled, that we can't we can't conquer uh, until we name it as fear. And and Jesus said to them, "I am very sad." It's as if I'm dying. Stay here and keep alert. Then Jesus went a short distance further and, uh, and, and fell to the ground. Now, that wasn't the normal posture of prayer in their time. It's not our normal posture of prayer. He, he fell to the ground. In other words, the language in Greek suggests uh, he was prostrate before the, the Lord, so what, before his father. So I wanted you to imagine him so filled with despair that his face is on the ground, a very unusual pose. And he prayed that if possible, he might be spared the time of suffering. And so he said in these words that so familiar to us, he said, Abba, Father, for you, all things are possible. Take this cup of suffering away from me. I don't doubt that many of you have faced suffering and have said that same prayer. I, I hope you uh, find some comfort in knowing that our Lord Jesus spoke that same prayer and in a certain sense has, has gone through that moment and has been and is in solidarity with you if you're in that moment right now in your life. Jesus, like us, was human enough to need support during this testing time, he was he was in agony. He was he was he had a contest inside him uh, between faithfulness and unfaithfulness, and and he's being stretched to the limit. And so so he echoes Psalm forty two and Psalm forty three, uh, which Judy read to us. Uh, uh, it, it may be that that Jesus' eventual acceptance of the will of his Father in Gethsemane owed something to his recognition of of the past of the psalm, particularly that psalm, where there is this mood of despair that, that uh, overwhelms the, the poet, uh, but eventually gives way to a calm trust in God. Eh? There is this disorientation, 
that is that that leads though ultimately to a reorientation. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my help and by God, as Psalm forty-two and forty-three both say. So in this moment where Jesus is having this contest within Himself, He appeals for His brother's support, uh, asking them to stay close by and just keep awake while he he goes through this. I remember my deceased wife, Claudia, those nights when she faced the reality that she would die and had only several weeks left to live. And and I remember the contest, the agony uh, where where she herself faced a temptation. I I, I know that many of you have seen this, witnessed it and and have perhaps experienced it or are, are experiencing similar contests within you today. This Temptation to make uh, this this death all about yourself. This was Claudia's uh, contest. The temptation to make her death all about herself and her anguish, uh, and ultimately, in uh, to, to to her glory, uh, she pivoted like Jesus to the. She made the decision to embrace this these remaining steps of. Of, of her her breathing life as an opportunity to teach all who loved her lessons, deep, meaningful lessons about grace, about what it means to live in faith, about what it means to trust in the ultimate deliverance by God. I, I was able to witness it. And I know many of you have witnessed that type of thing. And that's what Mark is describing, that Jesus went through here, a very real humanity. Jesus asked his father, to deliver him from this cup of suffering. And if you notice, his prayer had two assumptions. On the one hand, an assumption that the father is omnipotent, that anything is possible for God. And on the other hand, that God has a will which is to be accepted rather than be altered by our prayer. We don't pray, as C.S. Lewis is reputed to have said, we don't pray to to change God, but to change ourselves, to align ourselves with God. It's not for us, and it wasn't for Jesus as God's obedient son to assume that the God who can answer every request will necessarily be willing to do so. Prayer, rightly understood, consists not in changing God's mind, but in finding our own mind uh, and enabling our own mind to align with God's will. And where our desire is not in line with God's purpose, it's our desire which must give way if we are to be faithful. And this, my friends, is the great human and theological depth I think we see at Gethsemane. And then we see... Us being us, Peter, James, and John slept. He came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you stay alert for one hour? And then again, he left them and prayed, repeating the same words. And again, when he came back, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open, and they didn't know how to respond to them. Now, I know what it's like to have a struggle keeping my eyes open, particularly this would be late at night, uh, sometime before midnight, after a big, heavy meal. Um, 
And uh, I know it, at my age, uh, you know, what it feels like to have your, your eyelids, you know, incredibly health, he- uh, heavy. Uh, but I don't think that's what Mark is telling us is the situation here. Jesus came a third time and said to them, will you sleep and rest all night? And then he says something which our text translates as that's enough. Uh, the, the, but, but it's actually translated in other uh, uh, translations. It is settled. In other words, that's enough. It is settled. He has spoken. The father has spoken. He has settled what Jesus must do, what God's will is for Jesus to do. And so the time has come for the human one to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. So get up. Let's go. And then Mark quickly turns to Judas. Look, here comes my betrayer. And so we see that other framing coming now. Jesus predicted it three times. Jesus prayed. We slept three times. And then Jesus, Jesus, uh, just as Jesus predicted, the sheep scatter. We see that uh, just as Jesus was speaking, Jews shows up and with him is a mob and the mobs carrying swords and clubs. That's very interesting, uh, given that Judas knew the teachings of Jesus. Uh, the, but those those that mob uh, had, been, had been sent, Mark tells us, by uh, Jesus's uh, opponents, the chief priests, the legal experts, and the elders, which would be the members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, and he tells us, he says an interesting phrase, one of the bystanders, one of the bystanders drew a sword and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. Um, so it's interesting here in, in this scenario. So Judas has done what he promised. He found the perfect place. He, he, the disciples are isolated. They're in the dark. Jesus is, is with them, but not in a way that the disciples can protect him or that the crowds can protect him. Uh, and the high priest and his lieutenants did not need any of those swords and clubs, and they knew it. Uh, perhaps they were hoping for resistance from them that would justify their actions. You know, the whole point of the state's use of excessive force then and always is to imply uh, that the revolutionary deserved what the revolutionary got. In this case, that Jesus was a revolutionary leader, uh, that revolutionary leader who was a, a martial leader, uh, that, that martial leader that Jesus had always refused used to be as Judas knew. Uh, many people wanted him to be what they claimed he was. Uh, he refused. But nonetheless, they brought a mob, they brought swords, they bought clubs, and they arrested him as an outlaw. And by arresting him as an outlaw with all the, the posse's guns ready for, to blaze, uh, enabled them to have an excuse, a legal excuse to justify their own argument that the Romans should execute him. And that's what they that's what, as we know, ultimately happened. Now, Mark tells us that one of the disciples got carried away and tried to fight. John says that that uh, disciple was Peter. Uh, but the other Gospels leave him unnamed. Uh, it's interesting, Mark, uh, who has emphasized again and again that Jesus preached nonviolence, was aware of how violence contradicted all of Jesus's teachings. Uh, uh, 
wouldn't even identify this person as one of Jesus' disciples at this point, but just names him one of the bystanders. And in that same way, in verse 50, we see Mark describes the disciples running away. But when he does so, he doesn't call them disciples anymore. He just says they all abandoned in him and ran away as though uh, they weren't behaving at all as disciples. And so he refused to give them and honor them with that title. So they scattered. Now, Mark tells us that one young man, a disciple, was wearing a cloth, a linen cloth, nothing but a linen cloth. And they grabbed him. The mob grabbed him. But they left the linen cloth behind and he ran away naked. This is, I think, an important literary device here that we're seeing from Mike. I love the imagery echoing Genesis. Uh, you remember the story with Joseph when Joseph uh, came uh, in, uh, trusted, he got out of prison and he, he worked for a guy named Potiphar and Potiphar's wife became attracted to Joseph. Uh, here we have the young man like Joseph escaping in this, in Joseph's case, it was the sexual grasp of Potiphar's wife. This young man is escaping also by leaving his garment behind. Uh, it's important, I think, that it was a linen garment. Just, this, is on, this word is only used in the Gospels uh, a few times. Linen uh, is a cloth that was woven uh, from flax or hemp. Uh, it, was, uh, it, had the, it had the quality of being a towel. There was nothing securing it. Uh, the Romans used it as underwear in the winter, and they put their outer clothing on it. It wasn't worn outside normally. Linen in the New Testament was always a burial cloth. It appears 19 times. One, you know, one of those times is in, in John uh, 11, where we see the story of Lazarus exiting a tomb, and he's in this linen cloth. And then later we see Jairus, Joseph of Arimathea, um, uh, you know, clothing Jesus's dead body uh, in in this in this same word, this linen cloth. And so I think it's interesting that Mark takes this, uh, this tells us this story about this naked man clothed in a way that no one would be clothed, merely in a linen cloth. I want to remind you what it means to be naked. Uh, to be naked biblically, like Adam and Eve uh, discovering their shame before God, is to just you know, remember that they discovered that they were naked and they sought to cover themselves. Well, for the Jews to be naked in public is to be revealed as one in rebellion against God, to be shamed before God and before your fellow human beings. It was it was a, a mark of shame. And so I want to suggest to you, literally, Mark is, uh, is, is, is putting a little paintbrush mark over there. And this young man uh, has abandoned the burial cloth in which he was dressed uh, that would have been his destiny, the destiny of one bearing witness, the one who would do what Peter said he would do, who, who would uh, go with Jesus to the death. Well, uh, he didn't do that. He was dressed appropriately, uh, but it was only dress. He instead ran away in shame. Uh, just a little literary device for Mark that I think is important because we're going to see this young man again. And that brings us to the good news. So I said that Jesus's pattern appeared to have been Zechariah, his pattern of his self-understanding of, 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 of how the Messiah would, would uh, behave and how the Messiah would come and, and, and 
in uh, manifest God's victory uh, over evil. Uh, it was it was certainly inspired by Daniel and Zechariah and others. But I want to bring us back to the rest of the story uh, from what Tom read to us earlier from the prophet Zechariah, because that leads us to, I think, the good news for us today. As Tom read to us, the prophet Zechariah said that in the whole land, two thirds shall be cut off and perish, but one third shall be left alive. And I'll put this third into the fire. I'll refine them as one refined silver and test them, test them to figure out, to determine that gold is gold. I test it. So I will test them as gold is tested and they will call on my name. They will not fail the test. They will be proven to be the gold that I intended for them to be. And and they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. That's the rest of the story in the prophet Zechariah. And I wanted to remind you of what Mark has shared with us in the telling of this story. At first in verse 28, earlier on when he's predicting uh, that the, the, the sheep will be scattered, Jesus follows that with saying, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And that brings me to the young man, the young man who fled naked uh, in that linen cloth. Uh, Mark tells us at the end of Mark's gospel, uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, you know, the women went into the tomb and there they saw this is this is after this is on what we call Easter Sunday. They go into the tomb and there they saw a young man, this time not dressed in a linen cloth. Jesus is dressed in a linen cloth now. Joseph dressed him that way. This young man is dressed in a white robe, white robe, folks. Is the, is the robe of the martyrs. It's why I wear a white alb signifying the white robe of our baptism into Jesus's death. This young man is dressed in that white robe. And now he seats, he sits at the right hand of where Jesus had been laying, where Jesus had been, you know, laying in his death. And he sits there in a place of honor. And Mark tells us that they, the women were startled. But the young man says to the women, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he's been raised. He isn't here. Look, there's the place where they laid him. So go tell his disciples, all of them, especially Peter, that he's going ahead of you into Galilee, just like he said he would. You will see him there just as he told you. The young man, now no, no longer dressed in shame, but dressed in the clothes of ones who wore witness, who bore witness to the reality, to the promise, to the to the uh, to the hope uh, that is uh, the promise of our Lord Jesus. So I want to suggest a few things that I think are the good news that we might get into this, you know, from this text. The, the first thing is to say that we are not called to Jesus's unique moment of suffering. That is not, you know, being crucified is not our calling. Jesus went through that. Jesus went through that alone on behalf of us all. Uh, however, 
throughout the, the history of the church, beginning with Paul, we have understood that it's a part of normal Christian experience that we too should be prepared for what he experienced at Gethsemane, not what he experienced on the cross, but that very ordinary human experience at Gethsemane, agony, the agony that so many of you have experienced in your own life, the, the agony that some folks are experiencing now as they as they walk with Karen and they walk with Mitzi and they walk with others who are struggling with deadly diseases. You know, that agony, that contest between the temptation to trust and the temptation not to trust, the temptation to be unfaithful in the temptation to be uh, in, in, the, in the hope that we will be uh, faithful. That's part of the normal Christian experience, we, we are told, that Gethsemane. Uh, and and we, are to, we are called to, to live in that space of agony, to, to live in that, that space in prayer, to agonize in prayer as we await our complete redemption, as we await our deliverance and of, of ourselves in all of creation. In other words, we are called, I think, to live in the middle of this majestic scene at Gethsemane. Like the first disciples, we are called to be awake. We should expect what we may be experiencing right now, to be surrounded by confusion, to be surrounded by false loyalty, to experience direct attacks, to experience the kisses of a traitor, to, you know, to experience betrayal. We should expect those things. But faithfulness means staying with Jesus, staying awake with Jesus, not running away, but trusting in God's, the reality that God is in charge, that God is orchestrating these things and leading us to the still waters for which we yearn. Our faithfulness means we must stay with Jesus in the garden until the Father's will and not ours is done. May that be your experience of faith this morning and in the coming days. And may you empower others who feel despair right now to trust. May you sit with them and enable them to recognize that they are not alone and that God is leading them to God's very bosom this day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.